it was sort of like I remember realizing after being there for a couple of months, I was like, we're like the popular kids. <laughs> I was never the popular kid. And I was like, now I get to be, except we're nice. Popular to girls in the psych ward. <laughs> friends and welcome back to another episode of pickles and vodka the mental health podcast where we talk about the things that no one wants to talk about in real life because they're just too damn depressing um my name is christina your host and today's episode is actually pretty timely i'm really excited about it i talked with my friend lauren about her 35 year experience with eating disorders and um and how she's dealt with the challenges that have come up when she sought treatment, uh, specifically with her health insurance. We talk a lot about insurance and the struggles that we face when we do try to get treatment for eating disorders, all the bullshit that can happen. And yeah, like I said, super timely because when I left treatment a few weeks ago, I quit my job, first of all. Um, It was the right move. I don't regret it, but that meant I had to find new health insurance on my own. So... I found a plan, but now I have to find an outpatient team that is on my new plan, like a therapist, a psychiatrist, that sort of thing. So I do have my first therapy appointment with my new therapist scheduled, but it's not until May 19th because all of the therapists are super backed up right now. It's almost like we had a collective crisis last year or something, Um, but for real, mad respect to anyone who's seeking therapy right now. I know how hard it is. Uh, Lauren and I talk a lot about that in the episode today. But before I jump into there, I kind of want to be vulnerable with you guys for a little bit. Um, This week, I suffered some lapses in my eating disorder. And for those who don't know, in treatment, there's kind of like a relapse timeline that they talk about. So first, you have lapses. They can be single incidents, minor fuck-ups, get back on the horse, keep going. They don't have to lead to a full-on relapse. But when you have like a series of lapses, then it does turn into a relapse. And if you continue in the relapse long enough, you will inevitably lead to collapse. Uh, Luckily for me, I have never reached that stage. Um, I I'm really lucky to have the support system that I do and I I asked for help and I got it and I'm now in recovery but I think I was a little too cocky like they always told me that lapses were going to happen but I was like no it's not going to happen to me like I I can't binge and purge again because if I do then all of this will be for nothing and all my progress will be flushed down the drain and I'll just relapse again and everything will go to shit. (laughs) But uh, shocker, some lapses happened. I'm not proud of it. But the first thing I did was like tell some family members. Uh, I went to an online support group, processed it with some friends, and it's okay. I feel okay now. So I guess that's what's happening with me. I just want you guys to know that like you're not alone if you're dealing with this shit and It's okay to talk about it if you have a lapse with whatever you're dealing with, like if you're dealing with addiction or whatever, lapses happen. It's 2021, but like the world is still a hard place to live in and it will be for quite some time. So whatever you got to do to survive, no judgment, um, but let's talk about it. And that's kind of why I have this podcast. Okay. I feel like a huge poser now. (laughs) I got to do an episode about imposter syndrome sometime because I definitely struggle with that. Um, But anyway, I am going to stop talking and let you guys enjoy my conversation with my friend Lauren. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your week. And as always, my inbox is open if you want to reach out to be a guest or to just say hi. Um, Okay, stay safe, all that good stuff, and enjoy. Well, hello. It's very good to see you again. After um, the last time we recorded, I was trying to remember what we talked about and my mind was just blank. 
<laughs> like every time I record these, I shut off the microphone and then I immediately like forget until I listen to it again. Oh, see, well, lucky for you, I was the opposite. I replayed everything in my head and <laughs> was okay, afraid cool. of everything I said that sounded stupid. But just in case, I jotted down a bunch of things that I thought would be. Oh good my god, you're so prepared! I'm so impressed. <laughs> Yeah, so the last time we tried recording, um, the files never got placed in the folder. Oh. So what happens is Zoom will record it and then put the audio files in a folder, but like they started getting sent to the folder, but then they just got lost. Oh. I don't know what happened. So <laughs> why don't you take the wheel, since you are obviously more put together than I am, why don't you tell the listeners what your name is and what you're all about? Okay, so my name is Lauren, and... I am here and take two <laughs> to talk about my journey through eating disorder treatment, other mental health stuff in particular, um, how much I was kind of screwed over trying to uh, get insurance to actually I don't know, believe this was a thing. <laughs> yeah, you've had really bad luck dealing with insurance. In your treatment mm -hmm. journey mm -hmm. like you've been dealing with this for how many years now so that's always an interesting question because i've kind of realized in oh yeah i should also say um i'm 41 so older than a lot of people that are talking about this shit and <laughs> doing this stuff well the thing is everyone goes through this shit not just younger people but for some reason with eating disorders in particular, I, I think people think that it ceases to become a problem once you turn 30. Yeah, we have this idea that they're all just like pretty little 18 year olds that are like, oh dear, my diet got away from me. <laughs> when I was in treatment, there were a couple of women in their 40s and then there was one lady who was in her 60s yeah. that I met I there. I think the oldest I was with was a woman that was close to 60. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. It makes me think, okay, this isn't a game. Like, this mm -hmm. could be around forever. So how old were you when you first started knowing you had an eating disorder? Yeah, so um, I didn't know, but looking back, I could point to, like, three or four years old when I was having thoughts uh, that would obviously lend themselves to it. Like, I, I wasn't a four-year-old saying, I'm, I'm going to starve myself and I'm going to do all these behaviors and all this stuff. But I was four years old and wanting at my grandma's house to have a cookie or ice cream or something after dinner. And I remember asking her just, Grandma, can I have something good? Because it, I knew at four years old, it was shameful to ask, like, you don't ask for treats. Those, that's bad food. So <laughs> wow, it was like already my brain knew that much. And around 11, I would say, is when I knew what I was doing. Because um, I entered junior high. I'd been at a tiny private Catholic elementary school and went into the big public school where they didn't no one there wanted to accept me because they didn't know me. So I felt out of it. And on top of that, then I think I brought this up last time. Uh, my, my mom knowing like, oh, my little girl likes to read. <laughs> this, this is an interesting book. And she gave me this book called The Best Little Girl in the World. Oh, yeah. I remember <laughs> that now. It's kind of the anorexics Bible. Yes. Yeah, it's an eating disorder <laughs> book, right? Well, I'm sure it was written with good intentions, but it was written, I believe, in the late 70s. So it is very much just perpetuating the stereotype of like, these are ethereal, beautiful, tragic women that, <laughs> you know, fall prey to this. And everyone is so concerned over them and they're killing themselves and we just want to save them. And by the way, we're going to, you know, oh give a detailed play by play of everything that she does. So it really is just like a how to. <laughs> yeah. If only mm -hmm. we know now what we were, if we yeah. knew then what we know now, I can't talk. So why did your mom give you that? I have no idea. Do you know? She just like, I, I was a little kid that loved to read. I used to roller skate in my basement and I used to have a stack of library books on the couch in the basement. 
and I would just roller skate reading a book. And as soon as I finished one, I'd go pick up another one. I know. Like, like I could spend hours doing it. Maybe. Are we the same person? <laughs> I mean, I didn't have rollerblades. I wasn't that cool. But oh, that sounds like heaven to me, honestly. <laughs> yes. Oh, roller skates, rollerblades. Yes. The yeah. wheelie things that you put on your feet. So as a kid reading that book, did it kind of like reaffirm what you were thinking already about yourself or like what was your reaction the seeds were kind of planted I'd had some ideas from growing up like I said like certain foods are good certain foods are bad don't let yourself get fat earlier you said you knew what you were doing at the around junior high so what were you doing exactly yeah so at that age when when I read that that's where I felt like it all just like came together that it's just kind of like oh this is going to be my out this is this is how to do it and this is my saving grace. And so um, I did start probably trying to do a lot of the things in the book. I tried to not eat as much as possible and tried to force myself to exercise more, to burn more calories and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I think it was, yeah. I didn't feel like I was that good at it. And again, like I said, that, that book, how it comes across it was like oh I didn't get to the same weight she did I didn't fast for as many days as she did I'm not really eating disordered I'm just faking that's why I have I don't know how I feel about censoring that kind of stuff in eating disorder books because obviously it can be triggering like I know a few other books besides that one that I've personally used as like mm -hmm. instruction manuals but also if you approach them like from the right mindset they can be inspiring tales of recovery and also, I think it's important for the world to know what goes on if you have an eating yeah. disorder, you know, the nitty gritty details. And I know like, something else I feel like is there's only so much you can shelter people. Because like yeah. in my adult life, I know I was in a support group and they had a pretty typical, like a lot of support groups will say, we don't use numbers and things like that. And I expect that. But this one was militant about the things that they said. Um to the point where some of us got to kind of be friends when we'd see each other every week. And we liked to hang out afterwards. And there was a Dunkin' Donuts down the street. And we'd, you know, after the group, some of us would go and we'd have coffee. And I remember the first time they invited people and they said, you know, it's just so you know, if, if anyone still wants to just hang out afterwards and, and chill, then we we go down to the street to the, the place that's name we can't say. I was like, you can't say it because it's Dunkin' Donuts. That's it's like it's like Voldemort. Dunkin' how Donuts. How do you expect to live in the world if you need to be that sheltered? That's kind of how I feel yeah. about it too. If you shelter someone from anything, they're going to find out eventually, and it's not going to be good. Restaurants are going to be named things. <laughs> but with that said, like, how do you protect? You know, younger people especially from being influenced by that kind of thing. It's like you can't guarantee it. I guess you can't just answer. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know, but it, it is something that weighs on my mind sometimes. And I think like, I, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't want to have, again, a Bible for young people to follow. Yeah. Well, do you think if your mom had, I'm assuming she didn't read it herself. I seriously doubt it. I think what happened is she heard about it on a talk show. You know, she probably was watching Regis and Kelly or whatever. Do you think if she had read it with you and like, talked about it with you it would have changed your perception um at that age no just because of what a little rebellious shit I was and I didn't want to listen to my parents <laughs> so like that That's almost fair. could have made it worse if she talked to me I probably would have been like oh my mom doesn't want me to do this great <laughs> let's go yeah I guess it depends on how they're approaching you yeah I honestly think she just yeah she just had no idea she just heard this cool and As your sickness like progressed, did she notice or like how long was it until she noticed? No. So um, that's something with all the different behaviors and feeling like I wasn't very good at it. And I think it mostly kind of kept my weight in check. So sometimes I was restricting a lot. Sometimes I was binging and it just, it kind of kept me at a pretty even keel. 
So I think because that wasn't obvious and, you know, that's another thing that people only think there's a problem if your weight changes. Oh, don't you love it when your, your weight is just like even keeled and <laughs> everything looks normal and no one suspects a thing. And yeah. And you're just like, I'm, I'm slightly killing myself this way. And then the other way just to keep it in check. <laughs> but yeah, so it was never obvious. She like the rest of my family and most of my friends was completely shocked when at 35 years old, I went into treatment for the first time. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's a really big chunk of years mm -hmm. in between. <laughs> do, do you want to talk about what had led you up to treatment at the time? Like how it kind of progressed over the years? It did just feel like a lot of back and forth, really. I guess a good question to ask would be, um, Growing up with an eating disorder for that long, because I'm really interested in your story um, because you have had an eating disorder for many years, like you had it longer than a lot of people have. And so my question is like over the years, especially like those important years, like the 20s and all that, what, what was your experience like growing up having that eating disorder with you the whole time? Like, do you feel like you missed out on anything or like how did it shape you? As a um, I do. I feel like the last time that I was able to be in a relationship where it was never totally behind me, but like where I was able to commit myself enough to a relationship that I could be present basically in it is in my early twenties. Um, after that, it's always just kind of felt like I would like to be in a relationship, but I have kind of realized they're getting involved in like a false front that I put up. What do you mean by that? That the first thing I don't want to hit people with, <laughs> like on a first date, I don't want to be like, so I don't know how to eat and I pretty much <laughs> have it for three quarters of my life. <laughs> well, yeah, but you, you obviously you wouldn't tell someone like on the first date. No, but I think but... for, for me, I've always been a kind of private person, a very independent person. I think I can get through everything on my own. So I think that always just sets the stage where it's just, if I don't tell you like the very first sentence out of my mouth, then I'm probably going to keep convincing myself that I can keep hiding it or that it's not a big deal. For that first relationship, were you hiding it? Um, yes. Uh, but I think at that point I was still having some breaks from the really like hardcore behaviors and things like that. So I was able to kind of leave that behind for chunks Yeah. The same sort of thing happened to me for a while there. It was like, wow, this is, this is nice. So then you did you didn't have any like serious relationships after that? No. Um, Would you say your eating disorder was like the primary reason? I think so, and I think I didn't realize it at first. I tried to blame it on a lot of things, just like, "Wow, I'm just unlucky. Nobody likes me." Okay. And after dating a few people that wouldn't go past like a month or so and realizing like we never really were able to connect, then I think I realized it's like that I can't connect when that's the thing I connect to the most. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, it hurts so much because it's so relatable you know yeah. so you were 35 when you did go to treatment let's talk about your treatment journey because I know you have yes. a lot of good stories <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah by the time I was that age I definitely had thought like I've learned how to live with whatever I do and this is never going to get to that point where it would be that serious so I really did just think like, this is the rest of my life. I'm just going to be kind of like wavering in and out of okay and not as okay. And something I'd say the year or so before just started to snap. And a big thing was at different times, I had kind of dabbled in taking laxatives. And that just, mm -hmm. that turned somehow into a very bad addiction. And... I would say when you get pretty embroiled in that addiction, then it does become a lot harder to hide than just saying like, oh, sometimes I restrict. <laughs> I mean, not, not to downplay that and say like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's okay, but yeah. it is when you're... Well, laxatives are, are really dangerous, um, really shitty thing to abuse. Like what happens when you, when you abuse them? Like <laughs> <laughs> you well, want me to okay, say what no. I said last time? <laughs> Wait, what did you say last um, time? That I woke up to find out I shit my pants. 
Well, okay, you were saying it was harder yeah. to hide, and that just made me think. Like, I have taken laxatives before. I've abused laxatives before, and I know so when it hits yeah. you, you can't do anything else. Like, you're useless. It's hard to hide. When you do regularly abuse them, you start to learn that it's like there's a timing. I mean, I knew the exact point to take the, yeah. the first batch of a day and then the second. And then I knew based on that when they would hit and I could be home and I knew about when it would stop. But there's only so much prediction. Sometimes you think you have the timing down yeah. and you think like, I'm totally going to be smooth sailing to go out with my friends tonight. And it's not. Yeah. I played and sang in a band in Chicago for four years. And it was actually, we had a show on my birthday. I remember and I did think that I was going to totally be past the effects. And I mean, luckily I was by the time I got on stage, but I know the couple bands that played before us, well, I was supposed to just be kind of like hanging out with my band and listening, then yeah, I had to like keep running and making excuses and yeah, sitting oh there like, God. oh, please be over by the time we go on stage. <laughs> yes, that's such a classic story, but no one fucking mm -hmm. talks about it. <laughs> like, this is so refreshing to talk about. I know. <laughs> Let's talk about shit. Let's just go into yeah, the great it was raining for my butt. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's like we laugh about it, but it's yeah, really serious. And so that's what led you to go to the hospital ultimately you kind of looked at yourself and you were like this is um normal. yes and no i mean that was the thing that just got way beyond my control and at the same time you know not to be a cliche but i was taking a lot of laxatives and i was restricting and i was not caring about my life and definitely got to the lowest weight that i ever had so i didn't look pretty in addition to this wreaking havoc on in my innards. Yeah. But I still think because of at that point, the past like 25 years of being able to get through this, I still just, and it comes on so gradually that I thought like, well, you know, I've, I've lived with this, this far, I, I can keep doing it. I can get mm -hmm. through it. Um, maybe someday I'll figure out how to stop. But until then, you know, I, I don't need any help, excess help. And I had a therapist who was very no bullshit and <laughs> I was being pretty honest with her which probably was helpful because she did call me on it and I thought that she was going to suggest like an IOP program or something like that where I might have to like take a few hours off of work or get to I was in Chicago at the time like get to a, a suburb when I didn't own a car and I was thinking of all the reasons like I'm not going to be able to do something like this and she's just like uh no you need to go into a residential program um <laughs> I think you should get on a plane oh and give up your life for a few months <laughs> wow what was your response to that? Um, I think because I was so prepared to argue against these lesser things that I, I never thought this would be a possibility in my life. So when she hit me with that, I was just floored. And I was just like, oh, oh, hey, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should think about this because I didn't think anyone would ever say this to yeah. me. <laughs> was it hard to make the decision or? Sorry, that's but, Yeah. <laughs> Was it hard? <laughs> tell me how hard it was. Yeah, but I mean, like I said, this this is when I had to tell all of my family for the first time. My mom is the only one I told, well, I told everyone before I left, but my mom's the only one I gave like legit warning to because I texted my dad and my brother while I was sitting in the airport. <laughs> and it was just kind of like, hey, so also my band members, I let them know while I was, I think, either while I was in the airport or the first day that I got to treatment, then I sent them a message that was just like, um, I'm going to be gone for a while. I'm not sure how long and we're going to have to cancel the show next month. <laughs> and the funniest thing about that funny story, because I didn't tell them why or anything, but two of my band members were uh, lawyers and them wow. having no idea what's going on. One of them <laughs> immediately texts me back and he's just like, Hey, I don't know what you're dealing with or what you're going through right now, but you know, I want you to know, like, I'm on your side and I'm a pretty damn good lawyer. If you need it. So, I don't know what kind of trouble he thought I was in. Oh but. shit. 
Oh my god, that's hilarious. I know. <laughs> You're on the run. Yep. You've been mm-hmm. framed for for something. I don't well, know. I said when I when I told my mom, because um, I talked to her in a therapy appointment, I said like, oh, I want my therapist to talk to her because I don't know how much of this I can say to her, having never said any of this. And so I asked my mom, are you going to be around at this certain time? Can I give you a call? And it's all so formal and everything like that. I'm like, I'm pretty sure she thought that I was going to tell her, like, I'm pregnant and I don't know who the father is. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's, oh God, I'm getting butterflies just thinking about it. (laughs) So what was that experience like, that first hospitalization? Um, It was scary and awesome. (laughs) Okay. I was there about four months. So first of all, yeah, because I was just giving up my life and I had no clue what to expect. I know in the beginning it was hella scary and I've kind of come to realize thinking back and I have been to treatment a few times after that, but for some reason, just that first time, then I made good friends there. I made connections like I never have in my life. So, I mean, yeah. The shitty parts were shitty and it was hard to face all the things I've been doing and to talk about all the history behind it and all the things that hurt and all the things that sucked. But in the downtime, I had these connections and these friends that it just, I realized later, it felt like that's kind of what I always wanted to have in high school. And even um, my best friend there we we just had this weird like symbiosis (laughs) and I feel like people people could see it and people wanted to be around it and wanted to be around us because of that and it was sort of like I remember realizing after being there for a couple months I was like we're like the popular kids (laughs) I was never the popular kid I was like now I get to be except we're nice popular girls in the psych ward (laughs) It just felt like this thing that it was like, I wanted so badly all through junior high and high school. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I got it. No wonder I was happy in some moments, at least. There. Yeah, there's no friends like treatment friends, because from the very beginning, you're intimately involved on some level, like more, it would maybe take you months to mm-hmm. reach that point in the real world. But because you're all in this similar predicament, um, yeah, and you kind of skip forward a little bit in your friendship and even beforehand like everyone knows why you're there or at least a general idea so you're not going to shock anybody if the first thing you say is like so I took so many laxatives every day for the past year (laughs) yeah it's like yeah it really is like family like I I was I'm in a group chat with my treatment buds now we're gonna maybe meet up tomorrow (laughs) it's a really special bond but also what do you feel about like getting too comfortable in treatment I would say I've seen it and I wouldn't say that I ever worried about getting too comfortable in treatment itself, but staying friends with some of the, my friends from there and having to go back a couple times and stuff like that. I feel like I got to points with some of them that it was like, I really like you. You're an awesome person to, to talk to and to hang out with, but I can't talk to you because you are so entrenched in this and you think that this is your life and you think you're just going to keep going back and back. And if I want any more for myself, I I just can't. So yeah, there is some people where it's just kind of like, I have to take a step back. I care about you, but I can't just. Ultimately you're there for yourself and your own recovery. And it it sucks because you do get so attached to these people and you want to help them in some ways, you know, maybe they're falling behind and you want to like give them a hand forward, but you can't, yeah. like, you need to focus on yourself. And especially I feel like the people that I see that are like the revolving door of treatment and just yeah. keep returning and returning and seem to think that's all. And it's not, yeah, that I have anything against them. It's more like, because I like them as a person, I just want to scream at them. Like yeah. there is more to life than this. And I don't know how you to make them see it. it yourself. Like, oh my God, I felt the same way. There were a few girls in my ward were just like, they are so brilliant and funny and like beautiful. And they had the future in front of them, but like their eating disorder was just like killing them. And 
I was so fucking I've never been angry at my eating disorder like that before yeah until I saw what it was doing to my friends I know what you mean I want to be like you would give so much more to the world than you're giving to a treatment center (laughs) but you know what the same is true for us like we we don't apply that same logic to ourselves oh no because I don't think I have much to give to the world so (laughs) (laughs) uh it's it's hard So you were there for... So the first time I was there for about four months. And was your insurance paying for it? Yes, that was the last time my insurance did me any favors. Um, They paid, they didn't push back very much, a a little bit at the very end. As a lot of people find, stepping down is the hardest part. I weathered the stepping down to PHP and they let me stay there for a while. But then they just kind of were like, all right, now we're only going to cover IOP and I had a rough time there and I just don't think, yeah, an, an insurance company really cared <laughs> that I was having a tough time with that. So I just left. Yeah, yeah, that sucks. Yeah. And then how long again until you were back? So I I left IOP that time and I only was in IOP for a couple weeks and I apparently one of my defining moments as a friend that was there told me later is that I had an agenda to read and she said I just like kick back on an easy chair you know sideways threw my legs up over the arm of the chair she's like and just matter of factly read your agenda about like so I'm gonna leave next week I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna relapse and I don't really care peace out so that was that was the attitude that I left with so big surprise I was back within I don't know like six or seven months (laughs) I hate that they don't set you up for success like the insurance Mm -hmm. companies at least like if you don't have that support if you can't even count on like paying for your treatment how are you supposed to yeah I mean the place I was I felt like if they had been given the proper time, they really wanted to. I mean, they worked with me. I had, I suggested once because they wanted to know for specific people, like, what do you think will help? And when I went in, I was having trouble um, when I would be alone at night and I would just entertain myself by watching TV and just mindlessly binging. So they actually set up a binge challenge for me where they allowed me a bedroom that wasn't being used and I was able to go to their snack cupboard pick anything that I wanted bring it into the room with me oh and God. pretty much lock myself in the room that night and see what happened in journal about it oh it was but that's like some exposure therapy right there they specifically were asking me like what do you think would be a big challenge what would show that you've learned how to fend for yourself and I was like if I could survive a night like that then yeah oh my god that's so yeah they they they're willing to work with me insurance wasn't as usual who was in your life at the time like what kind of support system did you have um not much I didn't have very many close friends I'd been busy pushing them away by the time I got into treatment then I remember thinking about it and realizing that in the past year I had been out with friends four times the entire year Mm. So I was very much isolating. I know I was telling friends all the time, like excuses why I couldn't go out. And I'm sure it was like, because I don't want to go out to eat with you. (laughs) Yeah, eating disorders turn you into such a flake too, at least for me, they did. Uh, I'm just embarrassed to think of like all the promises that I broke to people because of my eating disorder. I could plan to during the day to, to go out with some friends and then just get, yeah, like hit by depression and be like, I don't want yeah. to move and just come up with something real quick and be like, yep, sorry, can't do it. You think people like knew there was something wrong? I mean, they didn't know that was what it was, but I mean, I'm sure they saw like there was problems with mood and things like that because I was isolating so much. Also, I felt like on their side, they probably felt like there's only so much they can do. So at a certain yeah. point, then yeah, you tell your friends you don't want to go out with them at the last minute and they stop asking. I mean, your lawyer friend probably thought you were a, a drug lord. <laughs> I don't know what he thought. <laughs> he, he was going to help me though. <laughs> that's, that's like yeah. wholesome if you think about it. <laughs> okay, so tell me about the darker times. 
I feel like the worst time as far as getting into the insurance mess is, um, like I said, after I left treatment the first time, fully planning to relapse and big surprise I did. I was back within about like six or seven months. And that time I had the same insurance, but they suddenly just decided they were going to be cutthroat, I guess. And like I was in residential for a few weeks, probably about a month. And I found out, um, I had seen my psychiatrist right before lunch and he ran into me right after lunch. And I'm thinking it's only like two hours later and he's searching frantically and has to find me. And he's like, yeah, we just heard from your insurance that they've cut you and we need to move you over to the PHP house this afternoon. Like you need to go pack right now. Oh Forget groups. God. Just <laughs> yeah, get out of here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, it's like you're already in a fragile state being there. You're already like making such a huge effort to just get yourself there. And then they tell you, oh, you can't be here. You have to move to this other part and you're going to have. Yeah. Part. And, and I like... know that time around, I had left treatment the first time, not giving a fuck. But by the time I found myself having to go back, I was like, okay, it did so much good the first time, but I'm ready to kind of like go back and finish the job. So I went yeah. there motivated. And so I was in a good spot when I went, but then I got that and then I adjusted to PHP and I think I was there 10 or 11 days. And then my therapist got me at about one or two in the afternoon and I could tell like, she felt terrible. She's just like, oh shit, your um, insurance decided this morning that they're cutting and they won't cover anything past IOP. And you've actually been through most of programming for today. So I'm sorry, but you all out of pocket today and we oh, need to fuck. get you out of the house or else you're going to owe an overnight fee and you're going to owe for tomorrow out of pocket. That is so messed yeah. up. Did you just like have a breakdown? Pretty much. I would have. <laughs> Luckily, even though I was five hours away from home, I did have a good friend in the area and she was willing. I mean, she was understanding of my situation where I was like, I don't, I can't get home immediately. Like just a couple days. Can I stay with you? So I stayed with her until my mom and my brother came to get me and then went home tanked quickly to the point where my therapist at home was like she she'd been through this before so she thought that she was going to get around the system because I'm sure she'd made this work before she was just like so if you actually go inpatient in a behavioral health hospital then they would see residential or PHP which I think you need at the very least as a step down and so the inpatient hospital took me and so I went, okay. I did that for a week. It was horrible. Describe the difference between residential and inpatient for the listeners. Um, residential, you're there 24 seven. So there is somebody always watching you, but I feel like they do try to make it feel somewhat like a home. I mean, different places can do this differently. The first place I went actually was a huge like mansion. So you were in a house. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that Netflix movie, To the Bone. Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, except for, you know, they had responsible dietitians that actually made you eat. <laughs> yeah, that movie's I know. I, my favorite thing about that place is saying like, oh, how, how soon until this place gets shut down? <laughs> I mean, no one's going to yeah. let you have a jar of peanut butter for dinner. But, <laughs> okay. Oh my God. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Get, getting. We need to do a whole <laughs> podcast episode about that movie where we just like. Shit I would need on to that finish movie. it first. I couldn't even do that. Oh my God. But yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, but your place wasn't like that. Yeah. So, so that one was very, was an actual house, but even the ones that aren't, it's kind of like they, they try to make you feel like you're at least, I don't know, you get some free time. You can interact with people. Yes, you're there to have supervised meals and therapy all the time because they know that you can't trust yourself to do that yourself. But inpatient is very much a hospital setting. And 
their number one concern, I believe, is to keep the person safe. And I actually had a kind of rare situation where they had an eating disorder unit. So I was on that, which pretty much meant you planned meals and had to do them by exchanges. Don't you do that in other hospital settings too? At least I have when I was in like residential and PHP. Yeah, I I wasn't at a place. I don't know what the exact difference was. I know the places I was, was at um, said they specifically did not like the exchange system. But yeah, you, huh. you definitely, you do meal planning and things like this. I was just saying like having an eating disorder unit in an inpatient behavioral health versus just being inpatient is, you know, they'll, they'll yeah. actually bring that part into it, but not much else. There was a therapy schedule, but I remember like half of them didn't occur. So we just kind of sat around and they had similar to residential for your meals. They would have um, time limits where they would say like, I think I already thought the time limits were a little excessive. They were like 45 minutes per meal and like 30 minutes per snack. And I was like, that's more than any other place I've heard. But, But on top of that, they really didn't enforce it. So I Mm. felt like, first of all, how am I supposed to get better in this place where literally the entire day I get to sit and look at food and focus on it? And yeah. And on top of that, there were things like our unit was in between, I guess, the main entrances and the chemical dependence unit. So the chemical dependence patients are often coming in like really hooked on chemicals. (laughs) And so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, their bodies are reacting to that. So I was there for a week and twice they called it code blue and they just had somebody freaking out or convulsing on a stretcher just parked in our unit while they waited for someone to come to transport them. I was like, that's not traumatic at all. (laughs) So you're in a cold, bleak setting with like not a lot of people who really care. No, like I said, they're just, they're trying to keep you safe. They're trying to keep you alive. But your insurance was paying for it, right? So that's what we thought as my therapist suggested, the doctor that I saw at the inpatient hospital suggested, and the intake person at the residential center I wanted to go back to, everyone is saying, we recommend you come back to residential. And so that was all set. And I got on the train, traveled five hours again, talked to the the intake person, talked to my dietitian, and within three and a half hours of being checked in, found out uh, your insurance came back and decided we're not going to cover anything past outpatient. So they had to get me, they helped me get a hotel for the night and a train ticket back. And I was checked in. I was checked in for three and a half hours. Meanwhile, you're dealing with a fucking eating disorder. That's the reason you're there in the first place. It's like, now you have to deal with that on top of all this other bullshit Mm -hmm. that's happening. (laughs) Oh my God, I can't even imagine. (laughs) And so um, my mom, who had known nothing until I was 35, I will give her credit. She actually really stepped up and was really angry when this happened. First of all... I wrote to my insurance being like, what the fuck? Like, how how did you pull this? And they came back and just gave a very cold explanation that was like, on such and such a date at such and such a time, you no longer met the medically recommended guidelines for residential treatment. And I, I mean, they don't tell you your weight when you're in these places, but after years and years and years, I have a pretty good barometer and it did not take much to figure out based on their wording and my experience that I was just like, so the morning that I weighed in at a certain BMI, you said, we don't care about anything else. <laughs> you, like I, I would bet, I don't even know yeah, what to I would say bet to that. the fraction of a pound. Like as soon as I crossed a certain number, they're just like, okay, you're, you're out. <laughs> that's that should be illegal like oh my god so my mom who I was saying stepped up she did some research and um she wrote back to them a very strongly worded letter 
she shared some of it with me where the the shining point I remember is she was like, so if you believe when several medical professionals have recommended this for my daughter and you don't believe that it is necessary, then I would like you to respond in writing that you're taking responsibility for my daughter's life. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You've decided what's best for her. So. <laughs> oh my God. Snaps uh -huh. to your mom. <laughs> How did they respond to that? Well, so you're, you're in a hotel, right? When all this is happening. Did yeah. you just go home and kind of like be like, all right, yeah, this just kind of went home and floundered and kind of made it work for another couple of years. <laughs> Damn. Did they ever like try to reach out and apologize or try to make it better? Well, they didn't. But about a year later or so, then I got contacted for a class action lawsuit. I had Blue Cross and it was the lawsuit was specifically against Blue Cross in four states, I guess, that they had identified as like systemically not like barring people from residential treatment that needed it. So they were just like, do you want to be part of this? And I'm just like, hell yeah, <laughs> make yeah. those suckers pay. Yes. <laughs> and, but being class action and four states worth, I was just thinking like, okay, I'm not going to get anything personally out of it. I'm just going to get the satisfaction of, I hope we win. And about a year later, I found out that they did win their lawsuit. And a few months after that, I got a check in the mail for, um, I believe the first one was for about $2,200, $2,300. And then there was a surplus. So I got another $250 a little bit later. Yeah, so I, I pretty much got $2,500 out of it. <laughs> well, it's kind of fucked up because, you know, that's like how much it costs to stay in one Two of those days. places. Yeah. A day right. and a half. It's bullshit. But like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And especially because at that time I had found myself in a spot where I needed to go back and that was going to cover my deductible. <laughs> so oh my God. When, and when was this? So that was uh, 2019 in the spring. Okay. So this was your, your most recent stay. How many times have you been total? Four. Four. Not okay. counting the three and a half hours. <laughs> and are you still like paying it off? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah I want to talk about that a little bit. Like mm -hmm. the, what happened after, because this is the part that people don't really talk about at all. Yeah. So um, the first place that I went did not do any sort of payment plans. So that was kind of a blessing and a curse because it was rough. And I had to ask my parents for money, which made me feel horribly guilty, of course. But it also did mean that I really didn't owe anything when I came back. The second place that I went did do payment plans. So I paid what I could up front, but I do still owe them money and they come after me. <laughs> and, oh my God. And I mean, I, I feel like they're, they're better than a lot of people. You know, they, we've got it. So I'm paying $50 a month right now. Cause that's all I can, which will take me longer than student loans, but hopefully at some point I can pay off a bigger chunk. And that's oh just my. with, I mean, that's just paying, you know, my, my 5,000 deductible or whatever. I'm so angry that this is the cost of surviving, mm -hmm. like just receiving basic treatment for this disease that's killing us. It's like, you have to go into debt. Yeah. It's like some people would rather die, you know? Well, and yeah, and, and it costs so much to get there. Even, you know, if you have insurance, then yes, you have to pay a deductible, you have to pay out of pocket. And then you should assume that once you've done that, you can stay as long as you need, but instead they're cutting so fast, even though like there's all this proof that these abrupt stays and cutting before people are ready just means you're gonna have to go back. So I'm like, insurance, you're shooting yourself in the foot, you know, <laughs> I'm just gonna go back yeah. in a couple of years and make you pay more. <laughs> Do you feel um, like, obviously you, you're jaded by this whole experience. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I guess, like, what makes you not give up yet when you do um, owe this much and you're, you know, it's, it's hard to find a reason to go back? So what was my last time going to treatment was about a year ago. Um, I just crossed one year out. <laughs> um, and 
that time was I admitted on March 12, 2020, which if people haven't already done the math, means within six hours, they decided that they were going to go on lockdown for COVID. They were not going to allow anybody else in. <laughs> I was the last person admitted. <laughs> until Lucky they, you. I know. <laughs> Believe me, part of me, because I really didn't want to go back then, was like, if I had just like stalled for another day, I couldn't have gone. <laughs> you wouldn't let anyone in. <laughs> but so you were in the hospital for lockdown. But, yes. So starting lockdown, everyone's also just kind of freaked out because the whole world is starting this and we're just like realizing, oh shit, this is this is life now. What state was was the hospital in? Uh Missouri. Okay. So I felt like a lot of the more therapeutic things for me, I know in the past had been things that were like meal outings and going out and doing some of this stuff on your own in the world. And that with Corona. Exactly. And I wasn't going to have that chance. So I didn't really care to stay there. And I did like feel strangely motivated all you of a sudden as, yeah, as just like, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do this here. So I, I think I'm going to do it on my own. And a really big thing that time was for the first time I was ready to discharge and everyone on my team is saying, we're not getting any pushback from your insurance. You know, they're, they're fine. And yeah. <laughs> and wow. yeah, but I, but I almost felt like that was actually one of the best things for me because insurance had screwed me over so hard in the past that this was my time for them to be like, that we're offering you this olive branch. Like, no, you can stay. It's okay. And I'm just like, nah, thanks. Uh, Fuck no, you. Yeah. I'm out. I don't need you. <laughs> what made you decide that time? Like what was different? That was like the final cherry on top to be like, no, I don't need this. I think it really was like a lot of people have talked about how they've started struggling in particular with, um, with COVID and things like that. And for me, it felt like it, it did the opposite in the mm. beginning. Um, I know I talked with a, with a friend who had also been in a, a rough spot and she had been been struggling but she was at home and she said like that she felt like she started to do better with this because she felt like she kind of like owed it to herself and owed it to her family and owed it to the people around her to stay healthy like hmm. if I am keeping my body healthier then I'm not going to get sick with this and possibly spread it to a whole bunch of people yeah I was like yeah I mean that was always my big concerned with COVID is I was like, I don't want to be the unknowing asshole that spreads it to 20 people. At first, I thought you were saying like, I owe it to everyone to be healthy so I don't get sick. But I was going to be like, what if you don't care if you get sick or not? <laughs> but then you said for other people, absolutely. Yeah. Like, okay. yes. Because that was me. And and the other thing I know with, with all of that is I had always felt like my downfall coming back before is that everyone expects as soon as you're home, it's just like, well, all right, you know, re return to life, return to work. Uh, you don't get a free ride anymore. And knowing that I wouldn't be returning right to work is just mm -hmm. kind of like, all right, so I get a chance to actually try this. I'm going to go home with a meal plan. Um, if it takes me four hours to do my grocery shopping to actually get what I need, then I have the time. Wow. And yeah, I'll force myself through it. So basically you started like making a program for yourself. Pretty much. And I do think, yeah, it was, it was having the time, yeah. like knowing that I had it, because I think that was kind of like what had hurt me before is saying like, I can go home and say, okay, I know this is my shopping list and this is the meat. These are the meals that I need to make during the week, but it's really easy when other things pop up to be like, uh, yeah, but I had to work late and my friend needed me to come over here and do this. And so, you know, yeah. I really didn't have time to look it's at a that. slippery slope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was, a, a year ago, right? Pretty mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. So where where are you at right now with your mental health journey? How how are you doing? Oh, I would love to say it's great, but it's not. <laughs> um, it was really good, like the best I've done for a while. And more recently, it's started to feel discouraging, just mm -hmm. kind of like this is going to be my life forever. Uh, you know, like I said in the very beginning, I 
think I've had the thoughts always. I started focusing on this stuff when I was 11. I'm 41. It's so much of my life that it's just kind of hard to even imagine totally giving it up. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't regret the times you went to treatment. Like, well, okay, wait, let me rephrase that. (laughs) Having had this nightmarish experience and having got to the other side and you're still dealing with this, do you regret going to treatment in the first place? I definitely don't regret going to treatment. Um, I see all of the positives. I mean, I wouldn't be able to sit here and talk to you like this if I hadn't. I don't think I had that kind of insight into myself. I went the first time and I think it took me like a month to even say the word eating disorder in relation to myself because it just was too like shameful to even say I was so closed up. So I think to, to a point there is, um, there's knowing what you're doing kind of helps. It's, it's like you, you can't fight a battle unless you know what it is. I think it feels like knowledge is power. Mm hmm. And just like they give you that language to talk about it to others, to advocate for yourself. And to realize where I think where some of it came from and to understand yourself. I mean, instead of just sitting back and being like, well, I guess I'm fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I guess I'm fucked up. Wait, no, I know I'm fucked up. And this is why. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but oh then you God. can actually at least try to work on it <laughs> like yeah. i know why <laughs> so how how are you working on it right now you said it's a tough time like do you have first of all totally valid in struggling right now everyone is obviously but like mm-hmm. it's been a rough time yeah and um i'm somewhat hopeful because i do feel like the things that had me feeling so strong towards recovery uh, a year ago, like the, the whole like lockdown, COVID pandemic stuff. I'm like, now I think it's actually coming around and affecting me the other way because I'm just tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it like never going away. And I think it's harder to see other people get to a point where like I was one of my last friends to get vaccinated mm-hmm. and it did feel when they all were very despondent, like everyone else gets to move on with their life. And I just get to sit home and talk to my ceiling fan. Yeah. So let's say like worst case scenario, this is something that we struggle with the rest of our lives. Like what are some things that have brought you comfort in those moments where you, you don't think it's ever going to go away? Like harm reduction or like, uh, that's a hard question. Like I, that is, I'm just kind of like, Wow, comfort. That's a that's a hard one. I mean, like basically like what keeps you from just like killing yourself? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's an easy question, I suppose. Oh my god, I'm I'm fucking up so hard. <laughs> In my mind, like I know what I want to ask you. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a way where to wrap it up with like some words of hope or like advice you could give to your younger self or like I don't know to anyone who's dealing with the fucking bullshit that is insurance in a mental health landscape in the world of COVID like what would you say to someone who's like deciding whether or not to go to treatment right now this is wonderful to wrap it up because this was in my notes that I jotted down of things I remembered because I remembered you asked something about that. Oh, and, and I also have a question from one of your fans to ask oh, too. Oh, okay. I'll pull it up while you keep on saying what you're going to say. Sure. So to wrap it up, I felt like two just really important things that I wish I had known from the beginning was, uh, first of all, that everything that I was going through was legit because I spent so long telling myself that I was fake, that this wasn't a big deal, that I wasn't, I wasn't doing it well, or I, I wasn't serious enough to require anybody to pay attention to me. And it's kind of like, even though he was in the end quite a shithead, one of the uh, very smart things that that last boyfriend I remember said to me when I mentioned something about this stuff to him was in saying like, I don't think it's a problem is he's just like, if you even think for one day, it's a problem, then I think you should listen to yourself that maybe it is because you wouldn't have thought that otherwise. Yeah. 
So yeah, I feel like take, take yourself seriously. And the other thing was that if you want to get through <laughs> this, if you, if you don't want to live this for the rest of your life, then you do actually have to put some work into it. You can't yeah. just like sit around and wait for somebody else to save you. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, I have obviously fought with insurance. Um, I've been through several therapists and things like that. And yeah, I'm struggling right now, but I am still going to therapy. I'm still talking about what's our next step, even though I don't like it. (laughs) Well, that reminds me, a mutual friend of ours sent Mm -hmm. me a question that she had for you. And um, her name's Jess. Shout out to Jess. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And you kind of went over this already. She basically says... um, a lot of times people with eating disorders feel like they need to be forced into treatment. Um, and she was wondering if you agreed whether being like forced is a setback for getting help. Um, well, okay. And then the second part of her question was, um, <laughs> is it possible to do recovery alone? Basically what you were talking about before, like being forced out of treatment and just having to go it on your own. Like, yeah. Um, First, I'll answer the second part first, um, where I feel like absolutely it's possible to do it alone. And that's just where I I don't believe that everybody is the same. I mean, Mm. some people are going to, I think are going to get worse if they go to treatment. They're going to latch onto the things like they're just gonna sit around and compare themselves and try and learn new tricks from other people. And I think like everybody is different. I'm not going to say that I believe everybody can do it alone. I mean, that's. And timing is everything too, you know? Yeah. But I, I, (laughs) of course I believe that (laughs) it's possible. Yeah. And what was the the first part? Oh, the the being forced into. Yeah. I, I guess she's just, it's kind of a confusing question. No, I, I get it though. Um, or at least I hope I do. I, I, I have feelings on that at least. Um, People forcing you into treatment. It's more like what I think is that's another thing where like, I feel like the detriment is believing that that is like the set path that you need to follow mm-hmm. and where I don't believe, you know, that you necessarily have to go through treatment and come out and have a therapist and a dietitian and a psychiatrist that all confer and everything like that. And that's the only way to recover. I also think that that's kind of like something that's been forced into our minds pretty much that is like, well, that that's how it goes. You know, you're supposed to resist. You're not supposed to want to go. And then you're supposed to get really sick and everybody's supposed to beg with you. And you're supposed to say, no, no, no. And then you pass out at school and then somebody forces you to go and then you get better. But if you just want to go by yourself, then you're probably being selfish. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 no. You're, oh my gosh, you're being so smart and so brave. If you realize like, this is not working. Yeah. And then just like trusting yourself is hard Mm -hmm. in that situation. It's like, how do I know what's best for myself? Yeah. And I guess as somebody who the first time I ever went was 35, you know, I was always an adult when I went in. I absolutely could have said yes or no. Nobody forced me. So just knowing that you have to make that decision for yourself, you have to say, I am really ready or I'm not, and it's not worth it to spend all this money on it. Yeah, it's it, it it's a lot of money. And that's the thing. It's also, like, a privilege, too, to have all this stuff. Like, how many people can honestly have a whole outpatient team and, you know, take off a month of work? Mm-hmm. I think there are, can be many paths to recovery, and they don't always have to involve, like, treatment. Yeah, I, I know, like, somewhere along the line that became the standard or the the idea of how the story is supposed to go that you don't want to go and then you almost die and you get forced in but I just I have mad respect for somebody that just sits down and looks at their life and is just like this is not fucking working I'm yeah gotta do something make your story your own it's not it mm-hmm. doesn't belong to anyone else but you and yes. even <laughs> if you know we do end up struggling with this for the rest of our lives like at least we're, we're talking about it we are becoming more confident with our voices at least like that's the impression i get of you like you're very outspoken and like i really admire you for talking about all this because it's hard 
Thanks. But like, I if mean, we I... can, ho- if we can just touch like one life. I don't know. I want to be like the bulimic, like big sister, like to everyone. <laughs> Smoking in the corner, be like, oh, in my old day, we didn't have insurance. <laughs> as as my first time at, at, at in my thirties that I remember, I was like, I was the scared kid and also had to become the treatment mom. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was like, I play both roles. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, baby. Right. Uh, do you have any final words to wrap up with? Any resources you want to drop? Any shout outs you want to make? Mm-hmm. Shout out to Pico. Shout out to oh Pico. Oh my gosh. Oh, I... Where is he? He's behind me. He <gasps> Pico! Wait, hold on. I want to do a screenshot. Pico! Oh my goodness. He's so cute. I love how he has. He's just been sitting there quietly behind you the whole time. Yeah, usually he's on my lap during these kind Aww. of things. But yes, yeah, shout out to Pico. Shout out to all the pets that deal with owners with eating disorders. I feel like they've seen some, <laughs> they've seen some shit, literally. I, I know it's cliche, but, but I did get him my first time out of treatment within like, a, like as soon as I could afford it. I was like, I'm getting a dog. So yes, he, he is a little bit my savior dog. <laughs> yes. Pico, you keep doing the Lord's work over there. That's right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I feel like you did a really great job of covering everything, especially considering it was like the second time I made you do this. I know I was feeling, I feel like, I feel like it went better the first time. Oh no, 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 no. Well, you know <laughs> okay. what? Good, happily for you, the listeners won't know any difference. I no, won't know no, any no. difference because my memory is shit. <laughs> I think you did great. All right. Um, is there anything you feel like you missed or like you want to say before hopping off? Uh, no, I'll think of it a week later. <laughs> all right well thank you so much lauren i appreciate all right thank you you. and bye Bye. pico (laughs) bye (laughs) have a good night hey guys thanks for listening to this episode of pickles and vodka if you could relate to anything we talked about you can follow the podcast at Pickles and Vodka Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook by typing in Pickles and Vodka Podcast. You can also email me at Pickles and Vodka Podcast at gmail.com if you have any stories or if you just want to say hi. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Stay safe.